0: Listen, we always recommend that you bring your sword to Cross Life. So if you have it, grab it. I want you to, if you don't have it, go on the App Store and download the Bible app. So you can follow along. I know it's lame. But if you don't have your real leather sword, go ahead and click. (laughs) Flip or tap your way over to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. But you know, my wife and I, Brooke, we live next to a real sweet lady. Uh, We pray for her, not daily, but real often. She's a really nice lady, and we're happy to live next to her. We actually share a wall. And uh, we interact with her a fair amount. She'll come over and talk, or we'll go over there. I just opened a can or a jar of coconut oil for her the other night, and we take out her garbage, not because she's older, but because she works out of town on weekends. Uh, She's an atheist. She doesn't know the Lord yet. But we count her as a close friend. We have a good relationship with her and really hopeful for the future. Her occupation, however, is a dirty word. It's a five-letter word. Judge. Judge. Noun form of it's not that dirty of a word, but the verb form we're accustomed to often. We hear this, "Don't, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Those are the words, those are the lyrics or the title for a song by Chris Brown, a song that's been uh, played over 108 million times on YouTube. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it. Here's the lyrics. Please don't judge me and I won't judge you, because it could get ugly before it gets beautiful. Please don't judge me and I won't judge you, and if you love me, then let it be beautiful. I don't know what that means, but (laughs) he's, uh, he's made a lot of money off of it. I don't look as cool or sound as cool as him when I say it, you don't have to go there to know that our culture, our people, we are a people paralyzed by fear of judgment. Paralyzed by fear of judgment. Fear of judgment goes by another name in the pseudoscience field of psychology called social anxiety. Social anxiety... uh, Psychologist Thomas A. Richard calls it the least understood anxiety disorder. Why are we so fearful of others? Why are we so fearful of judgment? Why are we so fearful of what others think about us? I kind of doubt the consensus of Richard's claim, but it is a fascinating one that this is the least understood anxiety disorder. It is undoubtedly influenced by what the Bible calls fear of man. Fear of man. This social anxiety, however, deals with judgment, if we can even use that word, on a horizontal level, on a person-to-person level, on a crowd-to-person level. But Jesus says, interestingly, listen, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, that's a capital H, Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell Matthew 10:28 this semester, I'm going to be honest with you, has proved wildly helpful for my own heart. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Tanner, and I get to teach and be a part of this ministry and studying and preaching and sitting under some of the other staff's preaching has been wildly beneficial to my own heart. We've worked from the beautiful captivating, amazing beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. It's what we've devoted this semester to. And without shifting our gaze from his person, we've determined to understand better in the coming weeks, in the last few weeks, and in the coming weeks, his work. His work, his accomplishments. But far more than merely musing over his pedigree of his person or his Uh, his resume, we might say, we've moved not just merely to observe him, but to love him, to obey him, and to follow him. I hope, like me, your heart has been warm, not just your heart, but your whole volition, your whole person has been warm to move, to love, follow, and obey the person of Jesus Christ more. Uh, We've done this fairly systematically. You and I have looked at Christ's past work and atonement. Remember Deontay taught on that. And then his present, or I referred to it as his unfinished work, as an advocate. And tonight we seek to roll away the haze and to look at an aspect of the work of Christ, perhaps equally awe-inspiring as the other two, but remarkably less popular. That is, the work of Christ as judge, as judge. You're in Acts 17, follow along with me in verse 30. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people, to, uh, excuse me, declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let's pause for prayer. Lord, we want to ask humbly that you would grip us with these sober realities tonight, that you would help us to take your word in with humility and readiness, that you would help me insufficient in and of myself to proclaim your word, and explain your word with clarity and accuracy. Help me not to go beyond what is written, but help us to understand well what is written and to be moved in body and spirit by it. We ask together through the precious name, of your Son, amen. Let's get up to speed with Acts a little bit. We jumped in at Acts 17. You know that Acts is the birth of the beautiful bride of Christ, namely his church. In Acts 2, we have the holiday of Pentecost, and we have the church that is born. It is a new organism, and its growth is immediately fueled by zealous, spirit-filled disciples who go about boldly proclaiming the gospel, first in Judea and in Samaria, right around where they are, but eventually they go to the ends of the earth. And we find Paul, by the time we get to Acts 17, on his second missionary journey, They've been to a number of places, most recently Philippi, but they also went to Amphipolis, uh, uh, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and Berea. And from Berea, you remember Acts 17, the noble Bereans, from Berea, uh, Paul sails up to a place called Athens, Athens in Greece. And while he's waiting there, he does, as you might assume Paul would do, he starts to reason in the synagogues and he goes to the marketplaces. And again, as par for the course, when Paul does this, what happens? Causes quite a stir. Not his method of proclamation, but his message. He goes around proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. People pay attention. First century Athens is stirred up and the people there take Paul to a place called Areopagus. It's a court on Mount Ares, which was the Greek god of war. He's not standing on trial there, but he's proclaiming, has a chance to proclaim publicly in a place where they do this kind of thing, a sermon, the message about Jesus Christ. And that's what he does in verse 22 all the way to verse 31. It's a very striking sermon, and he borrows from the Athenians' religion, exposes its frailty. He contrasts that with the self-sufficiency, with the magnificence, with the greatness of God. And then we get his punchline in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. Paul says God did not show indifference. He did not remit previous sins, but he has in his gracious forbearance delayed swift and active punishment. But he's only done this for a season. Look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that's a capital M man, that's Jesus, through a man whom he appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now I want to look at this verse specifically and judgment generally tonight from some different angles. I won't apologize for flipping around to a number of passages. I only want to do this tonight. It's a little bit unusual for us to flip around more, but to look at this from some different and striking angles that we might have a more robust doctrine of judgment. So if it's a cube and we've got it in our hands, we're going to turn it and look at it. It might be helpful if you want to to use the outline. First, this phrase, we'll be using language from Acts 17. Judgment has a fixed day. The natural question is what day? What is that fixed day? That's point number one, when does the judgment occur? It's an important thing to figure out. Hebrews 9, 27, some of us might be familiar with this, says this, and just as it appointed unto man to die once, after that comes the judgment. Does the author of Hebrews mean immediately after you die comes the judgment? Many Christians, if we're honest here tonight with ourselves, are confused about what happens when we die. What happens when we die? Do we go immediately to be with God? If we're not a believer, do we go immediately to hell? When are we judged? What does that judgment look like? We readily realize, at least those who are Orthodox, realize that the moment your heart and brainwaves stop and cease permanently, your eternity is sealed. Okay. But after that, are we immediately judged? The answer is no. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Over to the last book in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to find in Revelation 20 this fixed day. I want you to understand this fixed day is at the end of time, it's at the end of the millennium. After Christ has set up his earthly kingdom and ruled it with a rod of iron. The Bible gives great detail about this day. So in Revelation chapter 20, follow along with me, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. was so this resurrection and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a great and terrible day when all who have not chosen to follow after Christ will suffer the punishment for their rebellion. Whether active or passive, those who have chosen not to follow Christ will be punished. And rather than run to God, the text says that they will flee. Presumably in terror and in dread from God. They cannot hide, though. They face judgment, and they're judged, look at what the text says, according to their works or their deeds. Yet we know, if you've been here for any number of nights, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, Galatians 2.16, but through faith in Jesus. The verse says, so we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not from works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So how can they be judged according to their deeds? Well, that's exactly the point. Their deeds are found deficient. Their deeds are found imperfect, and their sin is exposed. And as such, they are thrown into the lake of fire. The works of a man or a woman confirm their true spiritual state and as found or as written in the book of life. So their deeds testify to their true nature. And this is a terrifying picture. Some of the passages we will see tonight are admittedly terrifying. If it's your first night here, you should know that this is an important topic. With great gravity, not every cross life is like this. This day is terrifying because Christ is seated in all of his blazing glory on the throne judging. He's not ready to be an advocate, but a judge. Christ is judge. Tanner, I thought you told us three weeks ago, two weeks ago, that Jesus was our advocate. Well, that's true. But I wasn't speaking about the day of judgment. This picture, this day is a future thing. The present reality is that Jesus is interceding as advocate for all who are his. But on this future day of judgment, Jesus will not act as an advocate, but as the one who rules down the judgment. This pictures a day when his present activity, his advocacy is finished. It's stopped. Further, as we would expect this harmonious relationship between God the Father and God the Son in which they work together in judgment is seen and spelled out in a passage in John 5. John 5. I want you to turn back to John. John chapter 5. This goes to point 2 on your sheet. Jesus is judge. Clearly the picture in Revelation that we just looked at, Revelation chapter 20, Jesus is seated on the throne as judge. Acts 17.31, 17.31, our primary verse confirms that or affirms that, but Acts 5 gives us further clarity. So meet me, John chapter 5, verse 22. I want you to see how God the Father judges through God the Son. The Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that is, God the Father, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." For as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. The text says, the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment over to the Son. This passage affirms that God the Son's, or Jesus's, equality with God the Father is perfect. It's harmonious. They're one and the same in uh, deity, in rank. It also demonstrates, though, that Jesus has the authority and will fulfill the role as judge. Even the Trinity, though, acting in perfect harmony, has roles and ranks set up in it. And Jesus' role is the judge. Jesus is judge. And God the Father has appointed him as much, and how has he furnished proof of this future work? How has God the Father ensured that judgment, this judgment that we're talking about, is not some empty warning, but a certain and fearful expectation for those of you and those in the world who do not know him? He has raised him from the dead. Our Lord, our captain, our savior, our master is not buried in a grave somewhere, he is risen. He's risen indeed. Acts 2.24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The resurrection is fundamental not only to gospel preaching, but even fundamental to the authority of Christ to complete his work in the future as judge. It is a central theme in Acts, and it's central in our understanding of Jesus' authority as judge. We need to ask now, number three, how does Jesus judge? How does Jesus judge? Acts 17.31, our verse, explains this for us by saying that he judges with righteousness. We might say with equity and with righteousness. Psalm 9.8 affirms this. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Psalm 98.9 says this, For Yahweh is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. You and I have all heard the tragic stories of human judges who have perverted justice. They've messed with the legal system. They've perverted justice. And we've lamented those criminals who wrongly have been set free. I remember only loosely the famous trial with uh, the famous football player and actor O.J. Simpson back in 1994. And uh, O.J. Simpson was put on trial for murder. Some people think he got off for free. I don't really know, and I don't know that we'll ever know for sure. I do remember (laughs) one of my friends telling me about a shirt they saw on a plane one time. or Not on a plane, but on someone on a plane. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It said... uh, Drink apple juice because O.J. will kill you. (laughs) The play on words is funny. The tragedy is too real and frequent. Criminals get off, sometimes because of human limitations, other times because of a perversion of justice. We've seen, though, especially since DNA testing, uh, those who have been exonerated, those who have been set free, who had been held in jail, we've heard of those who ought to be free, but instead stand condemned for a crime they didn't commit. God, listen to me, God takes issue with this in a colossal way. He who justifies the wicked, Proverbs 17, 15, and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. God is flawless in His judgment. He is righteous. He doesn't smile at this. He doesn't wink at this. He doesn't bat an eye or overlook this. No, perverted judgment is no laughing matter because because it blurs the perfect and righteous and holy judgment of God. Proverbs 20 Verse ten: Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You ever wondered why verses like that exist in Proverbs? <laughs> We're reading through Proverbs lots of times, and unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So there's a lot of things that are serious deals, but unequal weights and measured measures, an abomination—that's strong language. You and I need to see tonight. It's proper language. So as some businessmen in those days would rig the scales to make people pay for less than they were getting, or for more than they were getting, this alike, this perversion of the scales is a perversion of justice. It's worthy of the qualifier that Solomon gives it, an abomination. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 11, one, but get this, a just weight is his delight. God will have his justice. When God judges, it is with perfect justice. It is with perfect equity. Jesus will judge with perfect rectitude, with perfect righteousness, with perfect straightness, with impartiality, with no prejudice, with no arguing, with no appealing, with no lack of evidence. The gavel, friends, will fall And the judgment will be settled. When Jesus judges, he judges with perfection. And the gavel will fall with deafening silence. Takes us to point number four, what does he judge? What does he judge? Romans 2.16 helps us here. On the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of, Of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus judges the secret things. In fact, there are no secrets with God. The motives which lie behind our actions, you heard that right, the motives that lie behind our actions will be exposed. They will be made clear. When someone stands before Christ on that fixed day, all will be laid bare. The Lord will come and will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. And disclose the motives of men's hearts. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. There's no dark corner. There really is no hidden place. There's no hiding from the Lord. There's no place where one might escape from his all-piercing, all-understanding eyes. It takes us to point number five: who? Who does he judge? Point number five, who does he judge? This is an extremely important point due to a large amount of misunderstanding. What happens with believers? What happens with unbelievers? Do we go to the same judgment? Believers, you need to understand this. There is a special judgment reserved for you called the Bema Seat Judgment. We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I'll read it to you. It says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat, that's the word Bema Seat, Of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him from what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." The word here, the language, doesn't refer to moral good or moral evil. It refers to worthwhile things and worthless things, worthless things. So all the things that the Christian does can be characterized into worthwhile things, things meant to glorify and honor and lift up God, whether it's work or play or church or whatever it is, Worthwhile things meant to glorify and honor him, and worthless things. Listen to me. When I tell you, believer, sins have once and for all been dealt with at the cross. Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. Believers will not be judged for their sins, they will be judged on how they spent their life. Was it worthwhile? Were they obedient? What was the fruitfulness of our lives? Did we make disciples? Did we use the gifts, talents, skills, and ability that God gave us in the short time that we had here? I don't have this in the notes, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says something that's pretty striking. Right before this passage, he says this, Therefore, we have as our ambition, we have as our drive, we have as our ambition or motivation, whether at home or absent, that is whether he's dead or alive in his earthly body or his heavenly body, to be pleasing to the Lord. You want to know what Paul's greatest motivation was? It was to be, get this, pleasing to God. Why? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment or the bema seat of Christ that each may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. It's a judgment for believers, not a judgment where we have to worry about eternal damnation. No, a judgment where what we've done will fall before the glaring eyes of Christ and we will be either rewarded or suffer loss. In fact, this judgment is so different that, as I just said, there's actually rewards at this judgment. If you're taking notes, you can write down 2 Timothy 4. It's a verse to explore further on your own. Uh, verses 1 through 8 talk about it. I'll start in verse 6 where it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time is my departures come near. So Paul says, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to pass out of this life. And then verse 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous, here it is, judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to Paul, he says, not only to me, but to all who what? Loved his appearing. This word bema is a, is a word that uh, the Olympic athletes, a risen platform, used to stand on for their awards. For believers, we have a chance to be rewarded for what we've done. And what we've done that is worthless will be burned up, as First Corinthians says, is wood, hay, or stubble. There is, I believe, a separate judgment for believers and unbelievers. One leads to eternal loss. The other does away with temporal loss. One condemns with just retribution the sinner to hell eternally. The other temporarily judges the deeds of those who are Christians, those who are regenerate for the cause of determining loss and reward. Do you catch that? That's a very important distinction for you to understand. As we look to bring some conclusion, not just to our evening, but to our series in the coming weeks. Believe it, we only have three more cross lives after tonight. As we look to bring some conclusion, I want to remind you of our title. It's this, The Lion and the Lamb. The Lion and the Lamb. We tend to be, as a culture, quite comfortable with the picture of Christ as a lamb. And we ought to be. It's a good image. It's a correct image. It's a... Biblical image, in fact. But it's an image that's not without compliment. It's not without qualifier. The lamb is also a lion. The lamb is also a lion. And you and I catch glimpses of this in Jesus of Nazareth, don't we? Think of when he came out of the wilderness and he turned over the tables in the marketplace, in the temple, in anger. He dispelled the perverted justice of the people. You remember that. Listen how Michael Card, songwriter, describes this in his song, "The Lion, or the Lamb is a Lion." Weak from the journey, the long traveling days, hungry to worship, to join in the praise. Shock, mad with anger that burned on his face as he entered, the wasteland of that barren place, and the lamb is a lion who's roaring with rage at the empty religion that's filling their days. They'll flee from the hug of the strong carpenter's arm and come to know the scourging anger of the Lord. Priests and merchants demanded some proof, for their hearts were hardened and blind to the truth. But Satan's own law is to buy and to sell, but God's only way is to give and to die. The noise and confusion gave way to his word at last, sacred silence, so God could be heard. Jesus was not some dry, shy, dreamy, effeminate human. No, we see and understand his compassionate side well in his earthly ministry. His ministry of mercy to the people, his ministry of love to the people. He lived humbly and set an example for us as a human But tonight's message, beloved, is aimed at helping us understand and realize that Christ is also graphically portrayed as a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. No place do we see or understand this better than in chapter 19 of Revelation. I want you to flip or click over to Revelation chapter 19. We see in Revelation chapter 9, this picture very clearly, very graphically. Chapter 19, starting in verse 11. John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it, who is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus promised He'd come back. He is faithful and true to that promise. And He descends not this time on a humble donkey into Jerusalem. He descends on a victorious great white stallion in in total righteousness. He not only judges, He makes war. It's a terrifying picture. Verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head, there are many diadems, many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows, interestingly, but himself. His penetrating glare. His eyes are a flame of fire. His penetrating glare, none can escape. It's like looking into the brightest flame you've ever seen. Verse 13, he is clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Of God. Where did all this blood come, we must ask? Listen to me when I say it's the very lifeblood of his enemies. Way back in Isaiah, thousands of, or uh, hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth, we read this, who is this one who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. Edom here represents a God hating world in Basra's Eden's capital. Who is this who comes in this God hating world? He who is splendid in his apparel, we read, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This passage is clearly messianic. This is plainly about Jesus, verse 2. The narrator asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads the winepress? Jesus answers, I have trodden the winepress alone from the peoples. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and it stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. Jesus pours forth his unquenched and dreadful wrath on the nations here, just like he does in Revelation 19. Back to our text, verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. This is, of course, the church, his raptured saints, the Old Testament saints. We don't really help him in the battle. As verse 15 here says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. As Christ in the beginning generated life with his word, he now terminates life with his word. Listen to the great theologian Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s write this commentary of Revelation 19. 15, the words are exceedingly terrible. If it had only been said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which was infinitely dreadful. But it is not only said so, but the fierceness and wrath of God, the fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be! Who can utter or conceive of such expressions? But it is not only said so, but the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. On his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has ultimate power, ultimate authority. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice and he called to the birds. Get this, that fly directly overhead, Come. Birds gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The angel hearkens the birds overhead to come and feast on flesh. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered, get this, to make war. Against him who was sitting on the horse and his enemy and the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire burning with sulfur. The rest, verse 21, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In an instant, almost before it started, it is finished. The lion of the tribe of Judah has judged and he has made war. The lamb is a lion. And friends, the expression of many of God's attributes have no end. Once you understand that his love will continue and abound forever, It has existed before we even knew it. His holiness continues unscathed and unblemished, though men and women assault it. His omnipotence will not be stopped even by the very armies of God, Revelation, or the armies of the world, Revelation 19. But, listen to me, there will come an end to his patience. Generous as it is, Kind as it is, his forbearance, tolerant as it is, it will run out. It will be extinguished. His long suffering, patient as it is now, will someday expire. And on that day there will be no pity. Though all who are overwhelmed by his wrath cry out, he will not hold back. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five. The judge is standing at the door. James 5, 9. While procrastination is annoying in life and school, it's deadly when it comes to tampering with God. It is a terrible thing. To fall into the hands of this living God the lion of the tribe of Judah We must ask what can you do to avoid this terrible judgment what can you do to flee you cannot hide But there is an answer, and it is pure and unmistakable. It is this. Flee from the wrath that is to come by repenting of your sins and throwing yourself on Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ and be reconciled to Him. In fact, that's what Paul told them in Acts 17, isn't it? Acts 17, verse 32. Now when they'd heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. The reactions that we see here in our text as it pertains to the gospel being preached are common, almost remarkably so. You know this. Some sneer. They mock at the absurdity of Jesus being raised from the dead and coming back in judgment. Others might be interested or at least show initial signs of interest, but they delay. They perilously drag their feet. Their delay, in this case, may have proved deadly. Paul would not hear them again, or they would not hear Paul again because he would leave soon after. While still others, to the rejoicing, I'm sure, of Paul, And even more, the rejoicing of God Himself chose to believe, to repent and follow after Christ. It's what we often see when the gospel is preached. Unbeliever, do you shake your fist at God? Do you mock and sneer? Your time grows short. Romans 2 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I pity you because he will not pity you. Therefore, I will act in wrath, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice I will not hear them. Ezekiel 8:18. 8, Unbeliever, do not delay. Do not drag your feet. Find repentance tonight. Tomorrow may be too late for you. God will show you mercy. He will give you beauty for ashes. He will restore and reconcile you and call you even a son and a daughter. Believers, we have no cause for social anxiety. We have no cause to fear judgment from men. We have every right to fear God and to avoid fearing men. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 that Paul's great motivation, his great drive was to be pleasing to God in light of not the fact that his sins were gonna be accounted to him, but the fact that he was gonna stand before Christ and be him a seat judgment. He wanted to live a life worthy of the gospel in all respects, and listen, for all of us tonight, all of us, myself included, God's word ought to send us rejoicing believers. And it also ought to send us repenting. It is a joyful labor, isn't it, to engage in kingdom work in this valley, even it's my prayer to the ends of the earth. For us, our sins have been dealt with. The price has been paid once and for all. And it's been done away with entirely, entirely at the cross. You have no fear. You should have no fear of the day of wrath. Only motivation towards holy living, towards fruitful service to Lord, that you may receive your crown and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Mercy, God, mercy, we beg for the unbelievers. Ask that you'd break their stony hearts and that they'd turn to you. These are serious and somber words, if we've ever read them, a serious and somber and sober message, if I've ever preached one. But it's your word and it's good. May those who do not know you be warned well, and may you call them to repentance. And Lord, may those who do know you tonight, those of us who are followers of you, who made our calling and election sure, may we have great rejoicing that your wrath has been appeased, that there's no fear in death, that there's joy in this life and in your presence is fullness of joy. We long to live lives pleasing to you. Help us to fix our eyes on this author and perfecter of our faith. What we've sought to do all semester, Lord, see to it, that we rightly understand your son, that we pay homage to the son, that we fall at his feet and kiss him, lest he be angry and the nations perish under him, Lord, reconcile those who do not know you tonight to him and those of us that do grow in increasing joy in our hearts, in increasing fear of you, abate and do away with any fear of man that we might live wholly unto you. Amen.